Alright, finally, chapter 10. Yay, we're at the last chapter called The Fall of the House of Tramplebone. Measle could see that Tinker was getting bigger because the surrounding scenery seemed to be shrinking. Where, moments before, the nearby trees had loomed over the dog, now Tinker was fully half their height. His legs straddled the entire width of the railway tracks which seemed to be getting smaller and smaller, and yet Tinker didn't seem to be getting bigger in relation to him, which meant he was growing too. Measle glanced around. Yes, his head was now higher than the trees. He could look out over the forest. He could see the entire tabletop, and over there, the control box looked as if it was lifting itself clear off the surface of the table. He watched as the screws holding the box down on the plywood sheets were wrenched out of their holes with the sound of tearing wood. With a pop, the box was thrown to one side and he could see a very squash-looking group of people crawling out of its shadow. And they were growing, growing fast. And now his own arm brushed against the forest and 30 trees were demolished. He sat up quickly and felt the table wobble beneath him. He heard the creak as his weight increased. He saw Tinker suddenly stagger as the table shifted, then move away from him and jump toward the attic wall, landing with a thump on the floor. He looked again toward the people. They were close now, just a few feet away. Frank and Kip were grinning, and Lady Grant, still clutching her precious shoe, had tears running down her face, and William and Kitty and Prudence were jumping up and down and hugging one another, which was a bad idea because what with that all and all their combined and with was a bad idea because what with that and all their combined and rapidly increasing weights, the trestles supporting the great tabletop suddenly gave way and the whole vast expanse of plywood pancaked down to the floor with a great dusty crash. It was lucky that Tinker was so agile. He had been sniffing around under the table at some tiny fragments of sawdust, some of which smelled like the smelly boy, some of which smelled like the little girl, and all of which smelled like those metal things in the man's tool bags in the men's tool bags, and he'd heard a creaking sound over his head. He looked up just in time to see the plywood sheet sagging toward him. He jumped out of the way just as the tabletop smashed down onto the very spot where he'd, be st he'd been standing. And now, after all that excitement, there was the smelly boy sitting in the ruins of the train set, looking a bit dazed but otherwise fine. Tinker trotted up to him and gave him a quick lick, partly out of friendship, but mostly because he tasted good. And there, also sitting in a pile of wrecked miniature houses, was his dear old lady, rubbing her hip with one hand and picking bits of plaster out of her hair with the other. And she deserved a lick, too, as did all the other people, all of whom seemed a little dazed and confused. But that was all right, because the surroundings had certainly changed dramatically. And, as far as Tinker was concerned, 
for the better. Measle began to crawl through the wreckage toward the others, but something was in his way. A rectangular block of stone, which hadn't been there a moment before, was suddenly blocking his view. He stood up, his feet crushing the entire logging camp, and began to walk around the block. But the block was getting bigger, expanding in all directions, left, right, and upward. Measle looked up and realized it was the statue from the town square. Already the figures of the man and the woman were high above his head, just as they had been when both he and the statue were tiny. He looked around to see if anything else from the train set was growing, but no. It was just the statue on its stone base, rearing up now toward the rafters. And then the straining floorboards creaked ominously. On the other side of the statue, Kip was scrambling to his feet. He hauled Prudence up onto hers and shouted, Quick, everybody! The floor won't take the weight! We've got to get out of here! <coughs> Measle met them all at the attic door. What's happening? he shouted over the sound of protesting timbers. I don't know, yelled Kip, but I do know wood, and this floor is going to give way any second now. Come on, everybody, down the stairs and out of this house. They ran, stumbling down the stairs. Tinker was everywhere, under their feet, in front one minute, behind the next, barking with excitement. Down, down they went, first to the top landing, then down the main stairs, one flight, another flight. And all the time they could hear the attic floor groaning with its enormous weight that was resting on it. As they reached the hall at the foot of the stairs, a piece of plaster from the ceiling high above crashed to the floor, shattering over the filthy carpet. Out! Everybody out! screamed Kip. Frank wrenched open the front door, and they all piled out of the house and into the road, and Tinker dancing among them, with Tinker dancing among them. When they had reached the safety of the opposite pavement, they turned and looked back toward the house. For a moment, everything appeared to be normal, or as normal as the grim house could ever look. With its soot-encrusted walls and its tall, finger-like chimneys and its black-painted windows, and then, with a thunderous crash, the attic floor gave way, and the great stone block, with the two statues on the top, began to fall through the house. It hit the floor beneath the attic as loudly as a bomb going off. That floor gave way instantly, and the block continued on its way, smashing through the floor below, and then on through the floor below that, and finally down to the street level, where it landed on the filthy carpet with an ear-splitting thump. And then the grim house did a very odd thing. It sighed. <sighs> They could all hear it clearly, a great, sad exhalation of breath, as if it had lost the will to go on standing. The chimneys were the first to go. Slowly, one toppled, then another and another, their sooty bricks crashing through the black slate roof. The roof shuddered and then collapsed inward and downward, ripping its way through what was left of the floors. The walls were last. They started to crumple. Slowly at first, 
falling in on themselves with increasing speed until, with a roar, the whole building disappeared in an enormous cloud of black dust. The dust blew over them. It smelled of dead fish, old mattresses, and the insides of ancient sneakers. Everybody held their noses until the dust cloud settled. Everybody except Tinker, who couldn't hold his nose, and even if he'd been able to, wouldn't have. To Tinker, there really were no really bad smells, just interesting ones. Where the house had stood was a huge pile of black rubble. In the middle of the rubble stood the statue. The stone base was buried in the fallen bricks of and roof slates, but the figures of the man and woman stood clear above the wreckage. Measel, his throat dry from the dust, croaked. What happened? William began to say, Beats me, but the only but he only got as far as beats before Kip grabbed his arm and pointed at the statue. The outer stone on the two figures was cracking like an eggshell. A large chunk fell off the man's head, followed by another from the woman's outstretched arms. More and more cracks appeared on the figures, and more and more of the stone covering fell away, revealing to everybody's astonished eyes a real man and a real woman underneath. Suddenly, the man shook himself, and the last of the stone fell away from his body. He reached down and began picking the remaining pieces from the woman's body until both were free. Then he held out his hand, and the woman took it. He lifted her from her knees, and they clutched to each other for a moment, clung to each other for a moment. Then they both, re they both turned and looked toward the group of people on the other side of the street. They smiled. The man, still holding tightly to the woman's hand, stepped down onto the rubble, and together they picked their way over the ruins and walked across the road. When they reached the group, they stood first in front of Frank. The man let go of the woman's hand and took Frank's instead. He shook it and said, Thank you. The woman reached up and kissed Frank on the cheek, and she said, Thank you, too. They went to each person in turn, the man shaking hands, the woman kissing cheeks. When they got to Tinker, the man fondled the dog's ears, and the woman knelt down and hugged him hard pressing her lips against his rough muzzle. They left Measle for last. Measle had been staring hard at the man and woman who were now standing in front of him. There was something about them both, something he could almost, but not quite, put his finger on. They looked familiar in some way, as if he'd known them a very long time ago. Old friends, perhaps, from a distant past, very good old friends. The man was tall with curly brown hair. His eyes were brown and they were wrinkled at the corners when he smiled. They were wrinkling now. The woman was slim, her reddish hair tumbling over her shoulders. Her eyes were green with tiny flecks of gold in them. She was very pretty. She was smiling too. Measle stuck out his hand. Hi, he croaked. I'm Measle Stubbs. No, you're not, said the man. Your name isn't Measle Stubbs. It's Sam Lee Stubbs. I'm your dad, and I should know. 
And I'm your mother, said the woman. And Measle looked at her and saw that even though she was smiling as broadly as the man, she was crying. She wiped her hand across her eyes, sniffed and said, And you need a bath. There were questions and explanations and more questions and more answers and a lot of hugging and kissing. And Measle found himself unable to say anything very much because his heart was thumping in his chest and he felt like crying, although he didn't know why. He just stood and stared and grinned at the man who was his father and the woman who was his mother. And between answers and explanations, his father and mother stood and stared and grinned at him. At last, in a pause in the babble, he tugged at the man's sleeve and said, Sam Lee? That's your name, said Mr. Stubbs. The name we gave you when you were born. It's a mixture of our names, your mother's and mine. I'm Sam Stubbs. Your mother's name is Elizabeth, but everybody calls her Lee. The Rathmonk called you Measle because Rathmonks like to muddle things up. He used all the same letters as Sam Lee, but he mixed them around and came up with Measle. It was one of his many ways of trying to hurt you. Measle thought for a moment. Then he said, well, it didn't work. I don't mind Measle. I've sort of gotten used to it. Well, said Mr. Stubbs, if you like being called Measle, then we'll call you Measle. Thank you very much, said Measle. Something funny was happening to his eyes. They seemed to be watering quite badly. He blinked hard to make them w- the wetness go away. To change the subject, and because he really wanted to know, he said, Basil told me that you were killed by a deadly snake. And that wasn't true, was it? Mr. Stubbs raised one eyebrow. You don't think so, he said, a small smile turning up the corners of his mouth. Well, Basil never lied, said Measle, at least not as far as I know. Mr. Stubbs Stubbs nodded. No, he never did, and he didn't lie about what happened to us either. Of course, there were a few things he left out of the story. Things like the snake just happened to belong to him. And far from being alive, it was very, very dead. And it wasn't even a complete snake, just an ancient mummified snake's head. An ancient mummified snake's head that had one once wriggled about on Medusa's skull. Who, said Measle? Medusa, the Gorgon. Never heard of her? Measle shook his head. Mr. Stubbs turned to Mrs. Stubbs and muttered, not just a bath, dear, also an education. He turned back to Measle and grinned. Well, son, Medusa was a very nasty monster Monster who lived thousands of years ago. She was reasonably normal looking as far as monsters go, except for the fact that instead of hair, she had a whole lot of horrible snakes writhing about on her head. I don't know how she ever got any sleep with all that wriggling and hissing. Anyway, if you just looked at Medusa, you turned to stone. One peep at her ghastly face and bang, you were granite. Anyway, to cut a long story short, a bit shorter. Oh, please, said Measle, who was enjoying the tale. Well, I'll give you the full version later. The important part is that Basil 
had somehow got hold of one of her mummified snake heads. As you can imagine, they're pretty rare objects these days, and that's what he used on us. Even dead and mummified, and not even part of Medusa's scalp anymore. It still had a bit of power left, not enough to petrify us all the way through, but just enough to give us a good thick covering of stone. And all before we could say, What's that you've got in your hand, Basil? So you see, he was sort of telling the truth the whole time. Measle wanted to hear a lot more about gorgons and snakes and being turned to stone. But Mrs. Stubbs suddenly looked up at the sky and said, It's getting late, dear. I do think we ought to be getting home. Home, said Measle hopefully. Home, said Mr. Stubbs. It's a nice big house out in the country. Lots of land. A couple of streams a little, and a little lake. It should, be, it should still be there. I mean, only houses like this one fall over just like that. Why don't we go and see? Mrs. Stubbs had started to stroke Measle's head. Measle found that he rather liked his head being stroked. He bent down, she bent down to him and said, Come on, Measle, why don't we go and see? Okay, said Measle, wondering if anybody else could hear the thumping in his heart. Mr. Stubbs turned to the others. All of you lost a lot in there. A few years out of your lives for a start. I'd like to help you out, if you'll let me. In the meantime, a few days of rest and relaxation won't do any of you any harm. So I want you all to come and stay with us for a while. There's plenty of room and you can stay for as long as you like, until you get back on your feet. Lady Grant limped forward holding her remaining shoe tight against her chest. Speaking of feet, this is so kind of you, Mr. Stubbs. Unfortunately, as you can see, I have lost one of my precious manalos. It's somewhere underneath that revolting rubble, so I won't be able to walk very far. Mr. Stubbs smiled. Well, we shall have to do something about that, won't we? Just a moment. He turned away and took a couple of steps along the pavement, separating himself from the group. He seemed to be thinking for a moment. His forehead creased in a small frown. When his face cleared and he smiled to himself, funny how quickly things come back to you, he muttered. He raised his head, closed his eyes, and quiet, quite softly, Cathomil Stribbenrallo Manalo Carfax. What did he say, said William? A small, delighted scream from Lady Grant made everybody's head swivel in her direction. Lady Grant, still clutching her right shoe, was staring down at her feet. Both were still bare, but right beside her big toe, on her left foot, stood a battered and dusty left foot, high-heeled black shoe. Mr. Stubbs grinned at her and said, A bit bashed about, I'm afraid, but at least no longer buried. Oh dear, said Prudence in a nervous voice. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, come along everybody. I think we ought to go now, right now, in fact. Mr. Mrs. Stubbs smiled around at them. It's all right, she said. He was just doing a little magic. Prudence smiled weakly. <laughs> That's what I'm afraid of. Mrs. Stubbs, I mean to say, with all due respect, what exactly is your husband? 
He's a wizard, Miss Pizer. That was half the trouble, you see. Half the trouble? As far as Basil Trampabone was concerned. Uh, but that's another story. Don't worry, my husband is a very minor wizard. Oh dear, but surely you'd rather keep that a secret? I mean, we, um, we ordinary mortals aren't really supposed to know he's a wizard. Isn't that so, Mrs. Stubbs? Well, said Mrs. Stubbs confidently, I think it's probably best that you do know. After all, you've been through so much. You've known a wrath monk, for goodness sakes. What's a minor wizard after that? And he's very nice. Honestly, he is. He wouldn't hurt a fly, unless, of course. And here, Mrs. Stubbs lowered her voice to a whisper. Unless, of course, the fly happened to be a rathmuck. Mrs. Stubbs smiled a little, secretive smile at Prudence. It was the kind of smile that said, You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Then she looked around and frowned in disgust. And now, do let's get away from this horrible place as quickly as we possibly can. And that's where I'm... Oh, hang on. No, I only got one more page. Sorry, I thought there was more. All right. Nobody said no, which was hardly surprising. The only remark spoken at all during the next few moments was by Prudence. She whispered into Lady Grant's ear, Minor wizard indeed. I don't think so, Lady Grant. Rather, major, I would say. Really, said Lady Grant beaming with the prospect of mixing with members of the mystical elite. She detached herself from Prudence, put on her most winning smile, and made a beeline for Mr. and Mrs. Stubbs. But before she could say a single flattering thing to them, Mrs. Stubbs had taken one of Measles' hands, and Mr. Stubbs had taken the other, and the three of them led the small group away from the dismal street forever. When everybody had gone and the street was once again deserted, the small black cloud floated over the rubble, looking for something to rain on. Off to one side at the edge of the ruined house were two patches of green slime, one very small, the other quite large. There was something about those two patches of green slime that felt right to the small black cloud. So it positioned itself directly above them and began to release its rain. The rain fell heavily and quite soon, the two patches of slime began to dissolve, mixing with the black dust and the water into, the, into a soupy puzzle, puddle. Soon the puddle slid into the gutter at the side of the road, slipped silently down a slight slope and meeting a drain set into a channel gurgled down into the darkness of the sewers. And the small black cloud squeezed the very last of the water out of itself and then, with nothing left to rain on, popped with the sound of a cork being pulled from a bottle out of existence. And that is the end of Measle and the Wrath Monk. And there is a sequel to this book. Um, you will have to look online. Um, I think Nicole may have shared it with us, or maybe Amaya, I'm not sure. So I hope you enjoyed the book, and we'll see about starting another one. We'll talk about it at our class meeting.